Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Firm Discussions. I'm joined by returning guest Tristan Wayne of Hurdle Rate. Um, and we're going to be talking today about DSW Capital. Um, we, we went into quite a bit of, I recommend going back to the previous episode um, I did with Tristan, where we, we went into quite a lot of detail at the beginning about his background and stuff like that. And um, yeah, we'll we'll get a, what Tristan, I'm sure at the end, will hand off and tell us where we can go to find out more about him at the end. But let's, how about this time, Tristan, we just get straight into uh to the company so do you want to just give us an overview of dsw capital to start off with what's their business model etc yeah sure can so um first off obviously thanks for having me back on uh it's my pleasure um didn't expect to be on so soon um so dsw capital is uh it's business founded in 2002 by as the name implies it's three people all of their last names uh um make up the name of the business so james dow john schofield and mark watts so the brand that they run underneath dsw capital is called dow schofield watts so it's the last name of the three founders um and they're all ex-partners of kpmg so they left kpmg in 2002 and decided that they wanted to make a business model that was different um, and effectively, it's a, it's a business model that's geared towards people that want to be more entrepreneurial and in spirit, if that makes sense. Um, so the way they do that is DSW Capital is a service entity for these professional service firms. So they provide centralized support, which might include HR, marketing, IT, and finance. Um, they also provide the branding um, they provide funding for like the first year or two of a startup. So if you're leaving from a competing firm in a more traditional model where you're an employee, they'll actually fund your wages for the first year or two. Um, so that's an investment on their part. But um, yeah, they also get an access. You also have access to like the rest of all of the other employees in the network. So you know there's some knowledge sharing elements there and client referral um, as well so uh the service entity uh they generate that's the listed entity by the way um it generates revenue through a license fee uh predominantly uh it's charged as a percentage of revenue in addition to a profit share in some cases so the split of which uh, it varies from firm to firm uh, the cost base is minimal. They only have a few sort of employees in that service entity and then the board of directors and executive team. Uh, and it's all in just one office, so relatively capital light. Um, they don't share in the cost base of the firms that they provide license, like, like services to. So, um, And also they don't share in the working capital as well. So... All of their working capital are just debtors associated with the license fees that they build these firms, which are built quarterly, um, and then profit distributions. If they take a if they take an ownership stake, then they'll get a profit distribution. There's debtors related to that, um, and then there's also if they make startup funding, that's typically treated as a debtor because um, they'll just pay that back as they start to earn some profits. Um, 
Yeah, so on that, actually, just just to inject on that, um, so with the startup funding, how is that repaid? Is it um, does it just effectively come from the license fees, or is there additional? Does that have to be paid up front on before the license? You know, on top of the license fees. Uh, I'm pretty sure license fees is own thing, right? So you have to pay that regardless, but um, because it's basically the license fee is in return for the services provided by the parent entity. It's like irrespective of the startup funding. Um, so if you think of like an employee in a peer, um, they're sort of just going away as an employee that are sort of not having a good time and the Australia bots approaches them. Just think of it as a traditional lateral hire type of model. Um, and then they approach them, they propose what their model is. Um, and then this employee gets recruited by Dash Gofield Watts, and then they're the 100% equity owner in their own business. So they've just signed an agreement to get these services from Dash Gofield Watts in return for like paying them a license fee. Um, and then if they need it, then they can have their drawings backed for a year or two, and Dash Gofield Watts will basically provide them with finance for the startup of the business. Uh, think of it as actually interest-free finance, I believe. So they typically they pay that back within like a three-year period. So it's a relatively good investment for them. But um, so yeah, it's not. Guess, yeah, so that's kind of like to the yeah, because it's um, the com- the confusion perhaps is that because uh, there's sort of some there's different variants of how they acquire people on there sometimes they'll take a team and so there'll, there'll be a partner coming across and then they'll have some employee salaries they'll they'll bring as well um when they set up like a licensee um practice and then so i'm guessing like the startup funding would kind of like pay their the salaries of the people they bring over or something to with them yeah i mean think of it this way like um there's the equity owners in that new business and then they can also hire their own employees so obviously those employees are, have a more of a traditional arrangement of like a wage um, and the principles of the licensee um, they pay the license fee and it's their wages that are backed not the wages of the employees that they hire okay and I think that I think I read somewhere that the um the sort of maximum they've done for startup funding so far has been like a quarter of a million or something pounds, isn't it? Is that about right? Yeah, and that was actually for a five person team. So Okay. It's more like fifty K ahead. So they actually have this um this initiative, I'll call it, um, called the breakout fee incentive. Um and they're calling it a fifty thousand dollar golden handshake. It's pretty much exactly what I just explained, where you sort of you're funding the you're funding their usual like sort of wages that they would take for um up to a fifty thousand dollar grant, essentially. Okay. Um So that is kind of a grant rather than a that one in particular is a grant rather than a loan, then is it? The um, incentive. I mean, they call it an incentive. I think, I think it, it is actually like like a data. It'll go back to the ice cream, but what's it eventually? So, I guess yeah. it's more of a. Yeah, well, it's, it's an investment. They return on the investment is the fees that come in and, and pay for it eventually. Just like you, you invest in starting a new store or something. You, know, you get that money over time from the store revenue yep. or whatever. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think if if you if you think of it as a sort of we'll fast forward your business two years in advance, that type of thing. Like you 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 won't have to put up with the first two years of stress associated with oh, am I going to make this mm. worthwhile? It's good. It's going to help a lot to have that capital. Um, and it allows them to get partners that they potentially wouldn't have got otherwise if they didn't offer it. So yeah, it is, it is just it is an, should be seen as an investment from PSW's. Um, Point of view, I guess. Yeah, I, mean, I guess you could think of it as an uh, an employee acquisition cost, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, these these licensees they get to use the brand, the Dow Schofield Watts brand. So uh, most licensees adopt this. They're in some cases they have acquired other firms and they retain their own brand. So there's a there's a firm called Camly, which they acquired two three years ago, um, and then there's another firm just recently they acquired. It's called Bridgewood. Um, and they're that's an insolvency that, yeah. firm, uh, and they retain the brand Bridgewood. So uh, they can utilize their own model across like many different disciplines. So, like I just said, there's a corporate finance firm, and then there's like a insolvency firm. They have a bunch of other service lines as well. They have a VC business, for example. Um, they do financial due diligence. So that's basically sort of all of the research behind the MA. Um yeah, there are a bunch of other service lines as well. So, you know, uh, there's a wealth planning guy. Um and it, yeah, it scales down. So corporate finance is their bread and butter. Uh that's where they started. Um and it's by far their largest division uh at the time of recording. So they're consistently ranking the top twenty corporate advisory firms in the UK in terms of deal volume. Um, and you can sort of uh, you can you can check like sort of the rankings and the deal volume periodically. There's a um, report that's re- released by Experian, uh, they're like a global data intelligence firm, mm-hmm. and um, they they do a periodic M and A report, which is really really good actually. So, uh, and then they're also in the top fifty accounting firms in the UK. So also pretty successful firm so and they've, and they've sort of they've sort of taken market share pretty rapidly over the last well basically decade have some of their like recent acquisitions like the bridgewood one you mentioned um has that sort of shifted the you know made it a bit more diversified would you say um take it because it, i mean it was before it was looking back at the 2022 um annual report there was it was still very heavy um heavily concentrated on the M&A side of things. So these kind yeah, of like that's acquisitions an... that have happened post, uh, you know, since that the March or the end of March this year, have they sort of helped to balance it out a bit more? Yeah, it definitely has. Um, they are cognizant of the fact that investors like predictability, so they're definitely trying to diversify as of late. But um, also their, their core strength is in corporate finance. So you can think of, where most employees going to come from, they're going to come to Dowscope at Watts because Dowscope at Watts is recognized for its corporate finance. So in terms of employment, um, most of their employees they're going to hire are going to be corporate finance, but they're definitely trying to diversify, like try and make more of a, uh, I guess, a more of a steady flow of revenue, uh, if that makes sense. Um, and like you said as well, so, some of these ones they're acquiring are keeping their brand name. So if it, if, you know, if you're saying DSW capital is more associated with the corporate finance, then some of these other brands 
you know it might not necessarily uh, make sense for them to adopt it It'd better for them to keep their own brand if they're if they're associated with something else yeah yeah and i think that's what they've done at bridgewood right because bridgewood is its first firm in that local geography um and then bridgewood also had a number of business development staff so the business development staff would have a big long list of accounting firm contacts that they would call because it's an insolvency firm remember this um they call all of the accounting firms in the area and they like periodically try to pick up businesses which might be in distress um which may need to go through some sort of insolvency process um so yeah they kept those business development staff on and i think what they're trying to do with those staff for example is just sort of um basically do what they're usually doing but then also sort of we have all these other service lines now do you need any of this um Mm. so yeah so um i mean the uk itself you know in um, economic and business environment is a bit subdued at the moment and i and they've said themselves in uh, the latest annual report and i think things since then that um some of the M&A activity has been slowing down and and this is obviously one of the incentives for them trying to diversify and so on but uh, are we starting to see an impact on um on it slowing the growth of the business uh, in terms of acquiring new like you know getting new licensees on board new partners uh fee earners and so on um i think i saw i mean obviously things are this recent bridgewood acquisitions bumped them up again but i think there was a bit of a period where they actually lost a few fee earners wasn't there in the in the months before yeah, that before so, it came back up again uh we'll just double back as i mentioned it's corporate finance is a bread and butter so the productivity of most of their fee owners is correlated with the number of transactions that they put through. Um, so the business itself, they view growth coming from five different avenues. So we already spoke about breakouts, which is like the multiple people in a team coming across, but then there's also uh, geographical expansion. You can think of like the Bridgewood acquisition as multiple, it hits multiple parts of these growth. Um, avenues so uh, there's geographic expansion if they say they get open up a new office maybe it's a greenfield maybe it's an acquisition uh they can cross sell their existing services to new people in the area um service lines maybe it's a new service line uh it's also pretty straightforward uh new service lines they diversify revenue but they're also beneficial to cross sell um so maybe the revenue synergies are particularly material so it depends. I guess it really depends on how much the existing network views, uh, how much they're lacking in a particular service line when that service line comes on. So I know, for instance, um, they're like extremely under underrepresented in tax. So as soon as they get a tax firm on, then there might be some pretty nice like revenue synergies. Just not something you'd expect, but just you know they don't have one already. So. Mm. Yeah, it seems like they're really thirsty for that type of thing. Um, and then, yeah, the existing licensees can buy their own employees. So that's, they refer to that as organic growth, which, you know, it's um, definitely the case because they don't need to buy those employees. It's sort of paid for by those firms. Um, and then lastly, yeah, an acquisition of license fees. So it's where they make a capital payment for a firm. Um, and it's not an acquisition in a traditional sense. Like there's no change in ownership. 
typically there might be a small part where it's um maybe it's maybe it's an associate or just even just a smaller stake um and that capital payment is actually an intangible asset so in some cases it's actually tax deductible as well so more structurally appealing than a merger mm. um and I guess I guess more recently in the current year, they're pushing on with the hiring of new fee owners. So they've actually increased the cost base of the service entity. Um, and they've got increased support, multiple staff for marketing and recruitment. And they've also engaged a recruitment consultant. Um, and they say in their words, they sort of they say it's uh they're doing an exercise in market mapping where they're just sort of searching, like getting a full list of all these employees. Um, and then just sort of reaching out to them by email, take them, like call them up on the phone, that type of thing, just sort of generate leads um, okay. for them to to go on. Um, yeah, obviously with the hope of more more recruitment. Um, so, yeah. would you say that the the where we did see a bit of a dip and stuff like that in the fee owners was that more, um, or a slowdown was that more? some of the actual existing licensees tightening their belts a bit and maybe having to cut back because they didn't have quite as much deal flow or something? Yeah, I mean, it could it could very well be the case. So most of the churn they see is actually, in, if you think of it as like they have all these partners, I think they have around 40 partners now. Um, and then the rest of their employees are employees of, of those partners. Mm. Like their partners are all equity owners and their licensees. Um, and most of the churn is actually happening in all of the employees that don't own equity. So um, I think when James, I spoke to him last, he actually referred to, he thinks on average they lose one partner a year. So if you sort of do the numbers now, then you know, that might be like 3% churn in partners. But their actual full attrition rate is... Um, well, this year it was particularly good. Like financial year 2023, it was like 8%. Uh, but the year prior, it was 16%. So most of their churn is coming from non-partner employees. Um, and then that can, that can come from various sort of, it's usually in juniors. Juniors, they typically sort of, it, fe- it feels like you get underpaid as a junior. Like I know because I've been through that. Um, and I went through multiple different jobs as I was sort of a junior. Um, because yeah, typically the the pay rises are more appealing. Um, it's, yeah, and there's not you haven't got the incentives of equity or anything like that to to keep you mm-hmm. there. The the barriers for for moving there's not really much friction, is there? Yeah, pretty co- no, pretty really. copy and paste roles and stuff like that. It's not because um, you're doing working for external clients and stuff. It's not like you've learned the internal systems of the company and therefore you've built up that extra expertise or something like maybe you'd have in yeah. I mean, industry. there's a few things to this, right? So when you start a business, you obviously it's hard to reverse yourself because you've got all these clients that depend on you. Um, and then you know, uh, if you're a partner, you've also got your own employees. So you have to fire. You have to fire your employees. You have to get rid of all your clients. You have to wind up your business, settle mm-hmm. all your debts. There's so much friction to just, like stopping the business as as opposed to just you know putting in your notice. Three weeks later, you're just you've gone onto another business, you're an employee in the firm. Um, so, you know, it makes plenty of sense that employees are more churn, more churn than partners. Um, yeah. 
So um, maybe on more moving on to growth more generally. So they've can you sort of talk a little bit about maybe their historic levels of growth in terms of um, how many fee earners they've had to bring, they've been able to bring on and stuff like that as you know, sort of potential growth in that. And um, I mean, how long do you think? What kind of a runway have they got with this? Um, how how big is their market, and, and at what sort of point are they going to start? Button up against the competition to the point where maybe the growth slows down, or or is there um, a point in the foreseeable future where that would happen? So I'm just trying to look for the actual numbers. They have a video on YouTube which actually shows you their fee earners, and almost every year since inception, they just missed the, they just skipped the sort of first ten years. They only give you like two or three years in that period, but um. Pretty much from 2013 onwards, they give you the fianas in every single year. Um, and it's basically compounded around the rate of sort of 13, 15% a year. Um, and if you can think like you have volume growth in the number of fianas, but you also have revenue per fiona. So as inflation grows, there's more tailwind to increasing those, those fees. Um, so there's an element of pricing growth, not necessarily pricing power, but pricing growth just generally in line with inflation. Um, and then there's volume growth as well. Um, and then sort of those that's the primary method of their growth. So and then there's also um they started the licensing model in I believe it was 2011. Um, and then when they first started the license fees were only sort of 10% of revenue. Um, and they've actually increased so new new partners that come on now, they pay up to twenty two percent of revenue. So there's the sort of average license fee is slowly edged up over time as well. Do they so do they a, give like, much that's sort a good of driver reason, of their growth. Is that so do they give much reason for that? Are they sort of expanded their service offering? Um yeah, so that? that's I mean that's a great question because just prior to the IPO, they give out a prospectus. And um, in the prospectus, they have the number of employees at the service entity. And they only had one employee in like 2017 or something. So now they've got maybe, maybe uh, I think it might be 15 or 20 now. So it's really sort of expanded the support they're giving. Um, so it makes a lot of sense to increase the fees in conjunction with the increased support that they're giving the firms. I think they've now got like an IT team and everything, haven't they? Um, yeah, quite, yeah, quite a bit right. more than than the BAPs they were offering in the past, where it was just largely the brand name. Yep. Cool. Um, so yeah, on the like the subject then of how how far do you think they could go, and what sort of point do you think they're going to have? They're going to start. Um... Bumping into competition and it's slowing down their growth a bit or something. Yeah, I had some notes on this. So just um, so just at the moment they've got just over a hundred fianas, um, and I think there's substantial opportunity for them to grow. So James has stated that there's about forty service lines in which he would be interested in being involved in. Uh, just for reference, the firm currently they're involved in eleven, and well, most of those are a sort of single-digit count of employees, so like they're barely involved. Um, and they have a good deal of both the UK and Scotland in terms of geographic reach, uh, which remains untouched. 
So they also have a global M&A network called Pandia. Um, and it's sort of this global, it's exactly, it's exactly what I said. It's like a network of firms, which they don't necessarily get license fees from, but um, it's a network of firms that uh, they like correspond with for inbound M&A and outbound M&A, that type of thing. Mm. Um, and, you know, that could very well result in some form of international expansion in the future as well. Um, so, yeah, this combined with the turbulence that you see in the big four. So, big four, they have pressures to restructure their consulting and audit divisions. Uh, and it's the reason for that being is when you do an audit, you need to be 100% independent. You can't sort of... Mm, yeah. You can't just um, say, oh... Yeah, your financial accounts okay, but then you're actually preparing the financial accounts as well. So obviously, they need to be okay for you to get to do those financial accounts again. Like if you give a bad order of opinion and you're preparing the financial accounts, uh, you know, obviously, sort of, you want everything to be all dandy, all well and good. Um, yeah, so I think like the combination of that and then what I said before, I think it's compelling in terms of like TAM sense of view but um yeah i guess sort of yeah yeah there's there's quite a lot of scope because i mean the big four really are like dominant in in certain certain verticals i should add audit and stuff i should add as well that um sort of the vast majority of their employees are ex big four so Mm. 70 percent of their employees actually came from big four um and then the rest of them sort of mid-tier like may as well be big four it's pretty close um mid-tier firms yeah so yeah because i remember them i think in their annual report they were talking and this is something i've seen like there was i think um pwc was supposed to be splitting off its non-audit business entirely but i don't think that ended up happening um but yeah there's been kind of like some is there some kind of deadline 2024 they're supposed to be so this they're all doing different things. So um, I just used the example of EY. So EY was actually supposed to... <clears throat> wait, I'll go back. There's a business on the US stock exchange called Accenture. Mm-hmm. And Accenture is actually... It used to be part of what used to be known as Arthur Anderson, which previously, like globally, there was big five accounting firms. There was actually right. big eight, but it sort of consolidated down to big five and now it's big four. And Arthur Anderson was a big fifth. Um, and then effectively, it's, it went through a bunch of audit failures. They spun off the consulting business under the New York Stock Exchange, and it's been there ever since. Uh, Accenture's a great business, by the way. So, yeah, if you don't know that, take a look at it. But, um, yeah, effectively, um, there's EY was going to do basically what Accenture did. Um, and then there's been a there's been no shortage of audit failures. Like just you look at the news, they haven't seemed to happen every single week. So um, that's EY. Then uh, Deloitte has actually doubled down on their existing model. They call it the multidisciplinary partnership model. So if you've, if you know anyone of us in the big four, they sort of, when you get to a certain stage, you get a profit share. Uh, it's what well, they call it partner, but it's like, it's, it's not just partner. It's like, you, you're not necessarily an, you're kind of an owner, but it's not. They have their their own unique model where you actually get a profit share. So, um, 
Okay. It's like partnerships underneath the whole umbrella. So I don't know, not sure exactly how it works, but um, yeah, basically when you think about this, when you get to a certain stage, you get profit share. Um, yeah, and I guess so. That's those are their main competitors, but there's also um, they compete with other corporate finance businesses. So you can think of the biggest one in the UK being K Free Capital. Um, and then there's also FRP Advisory. Uh, those two are FRP is listed, K Free used to be listed. Um, and then there's obviously many others as well. Like I said, um, they're constantly ranking the top 20 corporate advisory firms. I think the last report, they were actually 18. So there's plenty above them. Um, yeah. So, I mean, just in terms of competition generally, it's extremely rare for professional services firm to have any sort of legitimate moat. So I tend to mm. just sort of yeah. don't really focus on moat because it's you just go under the assumption that it's not going to have a moat. Um, but positively, like industry valuations and professional services are rock bottom like all the time because, you know, it's, it's impossible to have a moat. So inorganic growth is common, very common. Uh, you just look at something like other list firms like Gately and Knight um, Knight Group, um, they all they're all sort of running their own sort of version of a roll up model, um, and even DSW sort of it's completely different, but it's it's along the same vein, um, mm. just a different way to go about it. So, but the businesses are all capital light, so like the only thing you have in your books is sort of debtors um, and. The amount of those debtors depends on how fast you sort of collect the cash when you send out an invoice, but um, we won't get into that. But effectively, the DSW, they don't share in their firm's working capital. So their working capital, if you put it this way, think of like if the underlying firms, when they send out an invoice, it's B to C. But when DSW sends out license fee invoice, it's effectively B to B internally. So it's a lot it's a lot closer relationship, a lot faster collecting cash, um, if that makes sense. So, their lockup is typically like less than half of competitors because of this. Yeah. And so, I mean, yeah, like you're saying, there's not really, I guess, um, you know, the it's a, a well-established industry. It's not like um, it's a new um service they're not offering like brand new services that aren't already in place they're, they're effectively just trying to draw in partners that are, are going from who would be working either independently or for other firms doing the same getting the same kind of deals and trying to bring them in and expand their band and so effectively they're having to it's a competitive thing they're having to take market share away from their competitors anyway so that that's that's where the growth's going to come from ultimately is competitors losing out beyond just the UK economy doing well and there being more business for everybody or whatever. Yeah, and I think I think we'll go back to their model. It's, it's unique as well. There's not many of these people going around that do like a platform model like DSW. Like they don't do like a you can think of this as a I call it a platform model, but it's really like sort of a franchisee model. Um there's not many there's not many like professional services firms doing that. And there's another listed firm called Keystone Law, which effectively mm. has the same model. Um, they charge a bit more, but they also offer a bit more. So net-net, uh, it's kind of, they have similar margins. Um, 
the DSW, but um, yeah. It sounds a little bit, um, I, I don't know a lot of the details about this business, but it sounds like it has some similarities to St. James's Place, if you've heard of that one as well. Like, um, yeah, they're more on the it. personal finance side of things. But yeah, so that they have a similar thing where they they offer a, a brand and a support network uh, infrastructure behind individual advisors for, for people, yeah. Yeah, so it's the same here in Australia. We have... Um... So every every financial advisor here, well, we, we're, we're going off a bit of a tangent here, but the model is we did talk about this as a guy, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think we did. Um, so maybe you just go watch that video. But effectively, the uh, just in brief, uh, the financial services license you need to have one of those. And what typically happens is there'll be businesses that solely exist to hold the license and provide compliance services to advisors. So the advisors, they don't want to go out and get their own license because it's expensive. Um, so the licensees effectively, they'll they'll hold the license and because they can do, they can offer all these services in at scale, like the mm-hmm. license cost is minimal per advisor, if that makes sense. So they kind of spread the cost. Um, and then in return for that, they usually take a percentage of revenue. So same as DSW. So does that, yeah, so that that's probably a good thing to address. And so is there like a similar thing that for these sort of corporate advisory services, are they, do you have to be licensed to provide those as well? Um, not, not, not that I know of. There is some service lines that are more regulated than others, um, but I'm pretty sure corporate advisory has limited sort of professional body, if you want to call it that. Um so, like, obviously, um, I'm not an expert on UK, so maybe I could be wrong here, but insolvency in particular, I'm pretty sure you need to have something for that. Um, and then I can imagine that tax, you definitely do. But um, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure corporate advisory and the sort of higher level, more consulting type work, it's typically actually like management consulting, for example, there is no public body at all and they earn the most money. I don't understand, but yeah, <laughs> it is what it is. Well, I suppose they think they're dealing with businesses that should, you know, <laughs> should know better. They're not, they're not as vul- businesses that they'll be dealing with aren't as vulnerable as individuals or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can look at there's another, there's another UK listed business called e, uh, Elixir. Um, and then they're sort of the same business as the likes of Accenture, the likes of, um, what other firms is there? Maybe, I guess by extension, maybe IBM can, can can be put in that bucket. But basically, all of their employees are just sort of really smart people that don't have any particular reason uh, to be offering the service that they do. Like, there's no education in particular, or no, you know, no professional body, no no certificates that they need to do that effectively. Mm. Yeah. Cool. So um, maybe we can like shift gears a little bit and just talk about the company's sort of capital allocation. So, how much are they are they spending at the moment on on growing the business and sort of what form does this investment take? And um, and then I guess after that, maybe if they're not if they're not in the money they're not spending on investing, what are they doing? But are they returning it to shareholders? Yeah. So we'll go from the period of IPO to present. Because I think pre-IPO, it's completely different. Mm. Obviously, like everyone pre-IPO is probably taking all the money out. Um, 
probably taken a hundred percent, hundred and one percent of the money out to be honest. But um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so just in terms of capital allocation, we'll start with like the. I don't know if you read the slide deck or the annual report, but they have a seventy percent payout ratio. Like that's a policy of theirs. They'll they'll keep it constant. Um, and that's seventy percent of their adjusted profit before tax. And their adjustments are predominantly related to pre-IPO share-based payments. So they're very light on adjustments. Um, so if, if you take out the expense that relates to that pre-IPO expense, then it's pretty minimal. Like it might be just a couple tens of thousands of dollars of adjustments, not, not that much. Because um, yeah, just, non- just on that point, there was like a pretty big um, share distribution to, to management wasn't there uh, as, uh, in yeah. the IPA, which kind of makes it look like the share-based payments are really high at the moment, but they should drop down to a more rational level. Yeah, if, if you looked at if you looked at their adjusted profit before tax and then their profit, oh sorry, adjusted profit after. Oh, we'll go before tax. Adjusted profit before tax and adjusted profit after tax. Um, there's like a sort of uh, a, the share-based payments might be like sort of one third of the profit before tax, so that's mm. obviously huge. Um, but it's all related to pre-IPO issuance, so it's non-dilutive. Um, and so they sort of they chose to expense it over several years instead of all at once. I think I would have preferred all at once because then it sort of would have got it out of yeah. the way. Um, but yeah, it's that's actually scheduled to end next month. So um, financial year 24 might still have some in there. But um, once you hit financial year 25, you know, sort of statutory should be very, very close to adjusted figures. Um, I know we're on a bit of a tangent be... here, but I think it sounds like a good time to... So would the... Do you have any idea what the actual um, baseline level of sort of performance-based share issuance is going to be like after that? Yeah, I was about to move on to that. Um, so there's... Um, they call the PSP awards plan. Um, and then that expense, if you take out the other expenses, it was only $70,000 um, in 2023. Um, and I don't think, you know, judge on the performance uh, lately, <laughs> it's been absolutely horrendous, but um, I don't think that they'll get too many awards from here. And at least in the very short term, I don't think they'll get many awards. So the expense should be low. Um do they actually disclose what the like the thresholds and so on and what the performance? Yeah, all the oh well, to some degree, they sort of they say you know it's a total shareholder return in relation to a comparator group, um, right. and then they give it they give a couple of companies. I think in one of the reports, I'm not sure if it's the twenty twenty three annual report, they give a couple of companies that you know constitute this comparator group. Um, so you could just think of the natural selections so- like. So that includes the share price, does it? <laughs> the total shareholder return. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Because that's going to so, be that's a pretty <laughs> that's a, a questionable thing. To, that's why I said they won't be too much. <laughs> yeah, is it, they can't really control that, can they? <laughs> oh well, yeah. I mean, it's a pretty standard, right? That's a pretty standard plan. Like, I, I, I in terms of their, this is a further, this is a question a bit later on, but I'll just say mm-hmm. in terms of their remuneration, I. I kind of just think it's fair. Like it's just okay. nothing special. Um, they don't pay particularly too much or anything like that, but it's just like nothing exciting. Um, yeah. So we got we got a little bit off track there, but should we just go back to um, go back to capital? So what are they doing with the thirty percent that they're not um, 
they're not distributing out to shareholders. Yeah. So as we as we discussed before, the thirty percent, uh, they're sort of the they're using it to acquire license fees uh, and then make out these break breakout startup loans as well. So pretty much all just that. Um, and then they don't really say anything about leverage, but they've used it in the past. So I would expect them if they wanted to, they would use it again. So um, I guess they yeah. don't need to at the moment. They're still pretty flush with cash from the IPO, aren't they? Mm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So they ended the year at around four point six million, but then they bought Bridgewood straight after they announced results. Results like on the same day. Uh, that was a couple of months after the end of the year. So. Oh, how much? Yeah. Um, how much did they spend on that? By the way, yeah, yeah. I think it's. Um, they said that after the deal, they have three million in cash, but that includes. So they spent. I think they spent around seven hundred k on acquiring the license fees. Like that'll be an intangible asset, and then they spent the rest on actually giving a loan to like facilitate a management buyout. So there's been a change of. Um, right. Like there's been a vendor who's old. He wanted to sort of take back, um, a backseat effectively. And uh, there's two, there's two like senior managers that have sort of stepped up. That makes sense. And there's all that their loan has sort of facilitated that buy-in. If that makes sense. So that is money that they pay that loan back, back over time. Well, then it that yeah, is money that but it's come like back it's anyway. pretty long term. Like I don't think there's actually a term on the loan. So. I don't know when that'll come back. I'd probably a while. If we're lucky, maybe sooner rather than later. But there is an interest rate on that loan, so okay, you know, it's not it's not complete free money. But um, yeah, just commercial terms. Sort of maybe these days it might be sort of ten, eleven percent. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, uh, yeah. Maybe I'll just touch on as well. Um, and then obviously all of that is in organic growth, the amount they spend, but there's also the organic growth. So the licensees hire and their employees, um, if rates increase. So, and then if the license fee increases as well, like the average license fee across the group. Um, yeah. And I suppose if the fees that they charge as well grow, um, I think I touched everything there. Yeah. Yeah, so they're they're not just sitting on the cash that they had because they had quite a bit. It was like around about five million or something, wasn't it? On the, at the yeah, the, they raised they raised five point one, and then after expenses, it's like four point eight or four point nine. Okay. Um, so that's not just been like, yeah that, that they haven't they're not just sitting on that. That's been used to try and fuel growth. So they're going above and beyond just the thirty percent of adjusted. Um, profits before tax or whatever um, yeah. they're spending, yeah. Yeah, so obviously, yeah, they got more cash than they know what to deal with, so they'll spend more than they have in earnings, effectively, for at least until they use it. And in terms of, like, cash generation, I mean, I think it was, like, um, like their operations generated, like, 1.4 million or something last year, didn't they? It was quite, quite considerable when you look at it on the base of their We'll get on to valuation later, but on the basis of their market cap and stuff, it's quite a quite a good. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's probably a good segue, but we'll probably touch on the next question first, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah, do we want to just like give us an overview of of management then? Um, 
who so i guess some i think at least one of the original founding members or something is is still directly involved in in management he's the ceo isn't he um and then the rest of i don't know what's happened with the the other ones they just seem to be more taking a backseat role or one of them's a non-executive director stuff like that yep so um as i mentioned it's the three founders that started the business um so james is the ceo as you know uh mark is actually involved pretty heavily in the corporate advisory business so if you think that DSW Capital is the service entity, they actually have a subsidiary called um, Dow Sheffield Watts Corporate Finance. Um, and he works pretty heavily in, in that business, like doing conducting deals and whatnot. But, um, oh, are they are they all so other than this CEO then of the capital, are the other two actually still actively working in, in the industry then? Um, as yeah, so this is, this is something that I wanted to definitely sort of get my head around so uh james is obviously involved directly in front of investors like that service entity but um mark uh mark is pretty heavily involved in that subsidiary um and then john is a non-executive director but they're all all three of them i believe are actually um so there's a business that dsw has a small stake in James himself has a larger stake and these other directors have a stake as well uh, called PhD Industrial and it's actually a holding company for SMBs. Um, so small businesses and it effectively makes investments in small and medium businesses um, and they're all involved in that but that's obviously just sort of an investing entity. Um, and yeah, so that's the three founders. There's also Nicole, so Nicole Burstow. Uh, sorry if I mispronounced that. I think that's the way to pronounce it. But um, she's been CFO since before the listing. She helped do the listing because she actually worked at, I believe it was PwC, and she actually worked in IPOs. So I, I assume, yeah, they sort of put her onto that as soon as she came in. Um, and then she yeah, she helped list the business, and now she's uh, CFO and just recently appointed deputy CEO. So I think I'm pretty sure, based on what James has told me himself, um, there's a sort of maybe short to medium term succession there for her to succeed James um, as they're getting on in age. And so presumably him, he, they're there, if you're saying they've got this other entity they're they're involved with, maybe he's got other projects he'll shift onto as the business grows. Then then you can't. It requires more fo- more time for a CEO. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, partly that, and then partly that he's in his sixties and he maybe just wants to start. You know, doing a little bit more leisure, but um, I guess, but obviously that sounds bad. But in terms of ownership, if you just count those four people mentioned, um, you get to forty percent of the company basically. So, just those four people alone, they own forty percent, and Nicole owns not much, like next to nothing, maybe one percent. Um, so it's all James, Mark, and John. So, if you include the insiders, that extends onto their family and. You know, maybe some particular licensees, uh, people involved in those subsidiaries. It's it's owned just shy of eighty percent of the company is owned by insiders. Wow. Okay. So there's only just a little over twenty percent. Minority shareholders actually Then really. <laughs> so you look, you look at you look at eleven percent. Uh, no, you look at the, I think today it's eleven million dollar market cap. But you know, maybe just a couple billion of those are actually trading. So liquidity is extremely low. 
Um, yeah. Yeah, well, that that can be um, that can be a good thing, uh, if from an investment point of view, you know, if you, if you can get yeah, and then into it. going back to like before on on the actual pay, um, you can see why I think it's fair because it's like it's hardly relevant. Like if they just pay themselves the token, like just a market wage, mm. um, and that the incentives, like the incentives are there, but they hardly matter. Like they only really matter for the coal who only owns like. One percent, or maybe even less than one percent. So obviously, she yeah. needs to be incentivized, um, and it's a fairly rudimentary policy. But I think that's literally what James told me. He said the, they're only really there to incentivize the people that don't have ownership. Um, yeah, yeah. So I mean, it would almost be better just for them to. <laughs> I mean, if he didn't take any salary at all, or a very minimal one, and just just was getting his earnings from the dividends, because at least. Anything that's dividends related is everyone benefits, even the eleven percent minority shareholders or whatever. Or external yeah, shareholders. That's right. I mean he still takes sorry. He still takes like a quarter of a million or something. Um yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um yeah, so maybe maybe now would be a good time to shift on to valuation. So how are you valuing the company and, and what do you see as the upside? I know you have a pretty high hurdle rate um for for your investment so how how is this company getting above that was it 26 percent 26 and a half percent yeah 25 i just i like okay. i like the number <laughs> better than 26 26 just doesn't feel right to me as an accountant um just to preface as well the group is reporting results this month don't know what date they just say november in their calendar so by the time you listen year to result, this so. recording they may have already released it so is that just like Sequoia, just like just like just like Sequoia, we're recording just before results come out. But um, you know, is that so the half year, Is like that the interim results? The first half, the interim results. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, yeah. So just preface that with that. Uh, I recognise here that the group is also highly correlated to, you know, the M and A deal volume in the UK. So you can't reasonably expect to have a high degree of confidence. So you're not just going to do some perfect model and it's going to work out highly accurate model. Um, so it's a little harder to sort of get a conviction, I suppose. Um, it's That's the main risk, I guess, suppose it could really go anywhere. But um, we can work with what we have um, and focus on what's more controllable. So obviously the recruitment is very important to the company. Um, yeah, and they're primarily primarily focused on expanding their fee owners in the group. So, and then what will vary is the revenue per fee owner as like there's wild swings in productivity as as evidenced by like M&A deal volumes. So when there's less deals going on, there's less for people to do in the group. So, you know, maybe they're going out for lunch for two hours instead of one hour. Um so back in like um, 2021, it was like another 20 or 30 grand per owner, um, fee owner, wasn't it, or something? It was it was quite a big jump back when the market was really uh, mm. booming. Yeah, and you say it's booming, but I actually don't think that's a particularly unique year. Uh, like on an inflation based, uh, maybe maybe I'll touch on this. I'll touch on this after. I'll move on to this next point first, but um. Yeah. So yeah, so the revenue per fee owner will vary, but um, the cost base should be relatively stable in comparison. 
Uh, at the moment, they're like they're hiring more at the service entity, but um, just like in, in a like for like basis, there should be very little change in the cost base. Um, uh, but in you know because there's so few employees at the at the service entity, um, just you know even a single employee, two employees can make a massive change to the cost base. So as it scales, that variability might be a little smoother, but um. I would expect just in a normal year, it's sort of that to be a lot more stable than the revenue. Um, and then there's obviously public company cost. So I don't know if you know this, but in the UK, there's like half a million dollars to list a company and like stay on the exchange. And obviously it's DSW, that's a big cost. Um, so, you know, as they grow, I would expect some element of operational gearing, uh, some element of margin expansion in in the assumption that the revenue per fiona will just stay stable um is it half a million ongoing is that what the ongoing cost is i'm pretty sure yeah pretty sure that's an aim cost um i like to monitor the like the m a market through like i said the experian report but i also like to look at the office of national statistics they have m a market like activity as well um in the most recent report from Experian, the D- the DSW ranking fell from fell to the lowest it's seen in the last three years, uh, and then the, in the industry overall, as in the last half year alone, so the lowest deal volumes it's seen in the last decade. Um, so I think that's pretty telling. Uh, deal volumes were down twenty three percent year on year, uh, and then in comparison. Because DSW lost its ranking, that mar- they actually lost more because they lost more market share, um, and they saw they saw their volumes down just shy of fifty percent. So, pretty brutal half for DSW. But um, we're missing deal values, so I sort of get half the story. But um, if I move on to the specifics, sort of, they generated one hundred ninety three k per fee owner in twenty twenty three. Um. But I like to look at the history of their revenue per fee owner. Then I sort of, what I did was I adjusted each one of those years by the inflation rate. Um, and, you know, their 15-year average, if you adjusted for inflation, is 220K. So it's actually what they did in 2022. That's the average. Um, okay. So ordinarily, you would actually expect them to do that. Um, and then what they spent, 220k, but then they only take a portion of that as a license fee. So in 2023, that was 16 and a half percent. It works out to DSW license fees per fee owner of 32k, um, and then the expenses were 20k, uh, and then the profit after tax was 12k per fee owner. So there's about a 20k cost, and that's that should be relatively stable um, unless they sort of front run costs and sort of go pretty hard on expanding. Um, if they return to the average, like that 221K, um, in 2023, they would have done an additional 350K in profit after tax. Um, but I'm expecting, because I've been monitoring the statistics uh, from both Experian and the Office of National Statistics, I'm expecting pretty brutal first half, uh, maybe even a loss. So, um, and then there's also, and that's because deal volumes remain weak 
but then there's also been further investment in the service entity, like more hire, more hiring. So um, I'm expecting a pretty brutal crunch between like expenses coming up and revenue coming down. Um, so there may even be a loss there. Uh, it's my hope that sort of they 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 do that, and then I get a pretty compelling sort of cyclical trough, if that makes sense. Um. Yeah, but I mean, if you look at it on a 2023 basis, they earned... So, in 2023, it was a really, really strange year because they did, in the first half, they did really, really strong half, like super strong. Um, And then the UK had a budget, like a mini budget, where they changed capital gains tax. Um, And like because they did that, they had a really strong half because people were front-running the the change in the tax. And then the second half, it was absolutely terrible um and then it's pretty much continued on this half so i kind of think that it's a bit of a bit of a weird time in sort of selling and buying businesses at the moment in the uk but um yeah i kind of view this half in particular i I view it as sort of a you know a bit of a disaster but i'm kind of hoping that that creates a bit of an opportunity so Hmm. Yeah, it might be the most op- opportune time after the results come out or something to <laughs> to get them on, on the cheap. Yeah, and if I give you some numbers, I'll just if I give you some numbers now. So they did one point one million dollars in adjusted profit after tax, and you know that's sort of not including the um, the growth shares, the pre IPO stuff. So um, that stuff will roll off. I'm kind of pretty confident on that, but um. $1.1 million in profit after tax. The current market cap is 11. Um, and then they have, as of the end of 2023, they had 4.6 million and then they acquired Bridgewood, but none of Bridgewood's earnings were in 2023. So we can look at 4.6. Um, so that works out to $6.4 million in enterprise value. They have $1.1 million in profit. Um, minimal interest. So that is basically sort of operating profit. Um yeah, so like, what's that? Six times earnings, um, and then if they return to average revenue per fiona, it might be more like four or five. Um, but you know, you kind of have to. I'm kind of really hopeful that they really get destroyed on this half yearly result. So, you know, maybe it'll go down even further. So it's kind of how yeah. I'm looking at it. Like, I'm not modeling it out or anything. Like, I did, I did a model in my deep dive. That I did when I initially bought it in 2022, and then you know that model kind of went to shit when I <laughs> when I when I hit 2023 because yeah because of that change in the budget and they sort of they even blew out my bear assumptions so yeah yeah it's I guess pretty... it's one of those it's one of those things that yeah it might it's got the prospect of going down further in the next year or two but um you know looking out five years or something it would have been fairly immaterial whether you bought it last year yeah i i like to think that there's a um there's a pretty nice bottom in terms of like the cash that they actually have like the leftover cash i think they have 25 cents no maybe maybe 13 cents a share in cash if you look at it on like a after the deal after the bridgewood deal basis and might be like sort of 12 13 cents so that's like 25 percent of the market cap um so i wouldn't I mean, I would love it to go past that and I'd sort of buy this at net cash. But, um, well, do you think, do you think that, 
do you think their uh, investment with that cash is gonna is gonna slow down? Um, or, no, or do you, or do you no. think there's you, you see because the well you're saying you're oh, that's that's your baseline, but if they end up going and spending that cash on on other, further acquisitions and stuff, then it, that might disappear as well. <laughs> yeah, but you look at what they spent it on, um, and Bridgewood in particular, it's completely the opposite of what their main sort of revenues revenue line mm-hmm. is. Like insolvency right now is booming because. Um, all these zombie companies are blowing up so there's plenty of administrations going around because there's actually I did a write up on um, this business called Begbie's Trainor uh, they're the UK's basically the largest administrator um, in insolvency um, oh no I think they're the second largest administrator and then first largest in terms of like just uh, liquidations like the the smaller sized um, just the files, um, they call it compulsory liquidations. Um, yeah, I mean, they're basically they're, they're top of the they're top of the um, top of the market in what they do. But um, I in that analysis, I took a really good look at the last sort of twenty thirty years of insolvency data, um, and then the last twelve months in particular. There's a really really noticeable trend of um, rapidly increasing administrations because through the period where there was COVID, they effectively turned off debt. (laughs) This is not unique to the UK. They turned off debt collection, uh, the government in particular, and they they sort of, everyone sort of followed suit. They were like a little bit more lenient on creditors effectively because they wanted these businesses to survive. Um, Obviously, there's sort of government funding various support schemes um, that sort of kept businesses, which probably shouldn't be, but are now feeling the pain because all of that excess is gone. Um, They can't back to business as usual and their business was terrible. So, you know, file for um, administration. I think when I, um, I think I heard a a podcast, some of that talking about, um, Obi trainer and i think um reading some results or something but yeah I, th- I think investors jumped the gun a little bit on that one didn't they when they saw they the insolvencies haven't really kicked in fully yet they i mean begby trainer's business hasn't ramped up as much as investors were expecting yeah. so that's still <clears throat> that's still in the next maybe 12 months or something that we'll start to see that, so that there's a, if you look at the data they break it down by file type um, and administrations, uh, like that's the big, that's the big sort of the big opportunity. Um, and they really sort of only really just recently sort of growing. Um, uh, most of the growth in uh, like insolvency over the past year or two has been in the very low value stuff that's like high turnover. Mm. Um, so there's been very little sort of high margin, high high value sort of uh, administrations, at least in where they operate. Um, but that has been growing as of late. So uh, DSW, they do much the same thing. I think Bridgewood is, um, it's obviously nothing, nowhere near the size of Begbie's, but you can imagine that they do some small businesses as well. I don't think they, I don't know whether they do 
too many administrations. I'd be interested in looking at that data actually, but don't have it on hand at the moment. But um, there's actually a website. Um, I the name escapes me at the moment, but there's a website where you can actually look at live, um, live insolvency data. So you can see all of the filings, like the regulatory filings that all of the oh, companies wow. that need to do insolvency. It might be the insolvency service, um, but you can effectively look at the real time insolvency, and you can. There's a really, really good search function in that um, on that website, and I effectively did it to, because I, I did all this during the Begbie's write up. But um, oh, if you go to that write up, you'll you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. But um, so maybe maybe link that in the show notes or something. But um. Mm-hmm. In in that page, you can search by company and by file type. So you can search exactly. You can search administrations. You can search these lower value deals. You can see exactly how many they've they've uh, lodged effectively. Um. So yeah, I think that's really good for seeing sort of trends because you can actually sort it by date as well. Yeah. So. Um... Yeah, that that might be that might be going through. It's good that it's good that DSW's got yeah. a bit of exposure to that. Or they'll have hopefully yeah, capture I mean, some of that. They've got at this stage they've got maybe twenty insolvency employees, um, okay. and then maybe that's quite a lot. Maybe then, yeah, because yeah, Bridgewood brought on thirteen, right? Um, oh well, twenty. Look at their slides, but um, are those included? It's, it's definitely in the mid, maybe high teens, but um. So those, yeah. those are clu- included in the fee earners, are they? Or um, are only a few of those that are going to be fee earners? Um, yeah, it is. All right. I'm trying to get the uh, trying to get the number up to fact check myself, but um, twenty. Yep, that's right. So they have twenty in business recovery. Insolvency, um, and then thirty-seven in corporate finance, eighteen in financial due diligence, um, and then that's pretty much the end of like everything else is below ten. So, yeah, cool. So yeah, they are positioning themselves quite well to capture some of that, you know, and like you say, anti-cyclical um, business. Yeah. So what's what's interesting here is what matters is also the license fee that they charge these divisions so i'm pretty sure um the corporate finance business is pretty low license fee actually i think it might be around 10 10 so if you can imagine revenue cyclicality it's not necessarily going to be dependent on how many fee owners as it is mm. how much license fee you're charging for the revenue that they're bringing in Interesting, so yeah. if you can imagine if you if you think that you've got 20 business recovery employees and then you've got 40 corporate finance if you charge a ten percent license fee to the corporate finance and then a twenty percent to the to the insolvency, maybe that's pretty much the same. Like, mm. Even though there's more employees, um, and is that just but, is that just because the a lot of the corporate finance ones came pre-IPO, so they they didn't they had a lot of fees then when they brought them on. So that that business, that corporate finance business, is like the. It's it's the long the longest running part of the business. So when mm. they when it, if you remember what I said back when they started it, they were charging like a lower license fee. 
Um, I imagine that's sort of just stayed, sort of stuck around. But um, I'm pretty sure Bridgewood's not nowhere near that 20%, by the way. It's just sort of, I'm just giving an example. But um, yeah, that, that, that matters as well. Bit of a tangent, but so going back to the license fees then, so are the people that are on the 10% still being offered the same services as the new ones or are they, or is it the case of if they want to access the new um, back office services that, that they've sort of brought on post IPO with the new hires and so on, um, that they'd, they'd need to have a renegotiate the license fee or something to to bring that back up? Oh, it's a good question. I don't have the answer to it, to be honest. But um, yeah, I think, from the best of my knowledge, it's everyone's on the same. Um, but I presume the they thing, they just so. weren't providing those things to them. So I guess they were getting them elsewhere. They'll provide self provisioning a lot of that stuff that that's now come on. So I guess they'll continue to do that. But maybe maybe that will be a source of some fee growth as well in the future. If they yeah, start. I, I mean, semi related, but um, when they so there's this really good note that um, their broker, Shore Capital, put out when they initially started covering them. And then in that broker note, like I usually don't like broker notes. Like they, they give unrealistic expectations. But um, in this broker note, they got they got a hold of some company data about the um, the previous acquisition that they did with Camly, which is a corporate finance business. Um, they retained their brand. So that deal... The details that they give in that note are very bizarre because the deal is extremely flexible. Like they, they, there's multiple parts to the. It's not just they didn't just purchase it. There's multiple parts to that deal. Like there's a, they purchased the license fees. They gave out a loan, and they also um, there's a profit share component. There's all these different components mm-hmm. to the deal. It's not just like they're going out and buying it. It's like it's it's like it's been negotiated. Like the Bridgewood is the same thing. Like they have that loan, and then they also acquired the license fees. There's multiple components to the deal. Like it's all it's all through negotiation. Like there's not just some set standard method that they do the thing. Um, and I think that's the benefit of having the, you know, the ability to just acquire, um, like a revenue, like a like. They're not acquiring businesses. It's more of a negotiation where they pay for services. If that makes sense. Mm. And I suppose uh, in terms of like a, making acquisitions of new businesses like the uh, Bridgewood one, now is an ideal, well, maybe not the Bridgewood one because they might stand to benefit from the increase in insolvencies, but let's say they were to do other more, you know, businesses that are a bit more depressed. So let's say they continue to build up something like the corporate finance, whatever. Now maybe they're getting, they'd be able to secure better deals for these ones if they were to like, um yeah better terms for them or things like that maybe although well I, I suppose i suppose that comes down to um it's it's difficult because it's not like a traditional acquisition isn't it in a lot of these cases it's um like the bridge yeah. one the capital that was provided was largely just a, a buyout loan um rather than uh yeah getting an extra they're not getting a big equity stake or anything in it as well so it may maybe yeah. it doesn't quite match but yeah so in the Bridgewood deal, for example, um, like I said, like the negotiations are really quite flexible. In the Bridgewood deal, they negotiated that they need to get a minimum of $130,000 per annum. So if you remember, they loaned out 
eight, I think it was eight hundred K actually, and then they bought the license fee on top of that. So maybe it's one and a half million dollars of capital deployed. Um, so there's a minimum return there. Like that's a contractual minimum that they need to pay them every year. Um of what is that, just eight percent or something like that a year? Um so they protected the downside in that deal really well. But um yeah. You expect it to do more because it's you know in a booming yeah. point in time. It, it probably is a good time to have to be fairly you know have a decent amount of cash available um, for these kind of things. Where other you know it just in any kind of acquisition business to be flush when cash when other people are tightening their belts and stuff can can be the time to get the best kind of deals and stuff. But. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, their intention is to really to sort of use that cash to grow the service entity by the looks of it, and like really pump up recruitment. And then, like, the recruitment doesn't just drive recruitment; it drives um, the possibility of acquiring license fees as well, because it's more of a you know just sort of a, a contact network. If that makes mm. sense. So, uh, yeah, maybe we'll we'll move now to just. I mean, we've kind of talked a bit about the risk, but what do you see as the kind of investment break, you know, thesis breaking risks here? I mean, what 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 could happen in the next year or two that would that would just make you reevaluate it? So, I mean, I guess we've talked about you know, there's there's potentials for the share price to go down, but that might be a buying opportunity. But is there anything that could happen that would actually make you think, actually, oh, I need to get out? Um, I suppose the main really thing is like sustained weakness in the M and A market. Um, and then if they sort of, you know, I thought about this reasonably, and um, and there's like there's a few things that may give me pause. Um, I've spoken to others, and they say that sort of, I'm not really one to really care about founder-led businesses or anything like the sort, but um. In this case, it's sort of if James was to leave, I don't really view that as a particular problem because there's such widespread ownership within like just everyone within the business, mm-hmm. widespread ownership. So I don't really care about any one particular person. But um because um I like Nicole, she's pretty good. I've spoken to her before. Um you know, don't have a problem with her. Um I'd be interested to know how she does with like capital allocation, but it's majority dividend, so uh, it doesn't matter as much as some other businesses, but um, yeah, I suppose um, it's very real possibility of a. I just want to curse myself to say this word, but a take under as well. Um, so like that's where they sort of take it private, like the insiders take yeah. it private, um, and obviously this one sort of. Can see a situation where that may occur, um, just because of the widespread ownership. It would vote through really easily, you know. Kind of, yeah. Do you think part of that That's, might come that if, if, like the li- if, because um, you're saying about the half million listing fees, if it got to the stage where the fee income dropped off to a point where it was not really covering some of those or struggling to cover some of those expenses, then they, the insiders, would just be going, well. Let's just take. Let's just uh, 
cut this expense, mm. delist ourselves effectively, and uh, and then take yeah. this as yeah. instead. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It makes a lot of sense, Brad. Um, so, yeah, if they fail to really sort of grow the fee earners at the rate that they're probably thinking internally when they were going to list, because, um, you know, like just before they listed, they, they grew, they almost tripled the fee earners in like three or four years. Uh, sorry, not tripled, doubled. Um, but yeah, sort of. No, tripled the revenue, uh, doubled the revenue. Sorry, my bad. But um, yeah, there's, you know, if they failed to get the growth that they want to get. I guess with their stake as well, they um, they they wouldn't really need to do something like, uh, you know, actually buy the shares on the market. On the open market or anything they would they'd just be able to say right we're making this offer it's been voted through and everyone who's in that 11 percent has to accept it <laughs> so uh i guess that is the risk there that, that you'd have to just hope they were decent enough to to put a valuation on it that, that that you know covered your your cost basis but um or gave you some upside maybe but i don't know I guess the incentives are against them to do that. I guess it mainly comes down to like the more minority, well, even like the minority partners and stuff like that um, would still, potentially they would still retain their shareholding when it went private again anyway. So they might not do anything, but maybe there's employees of the companies that have have got stakes and that they'd be worried about impacting them or something i don't know what do you think about that do you think there's there's a risk there that they would just do some they just do whatever the mark if it went down to some crazy cheap price they just say oh we're just going to pay that i'm not bothered to actually pay a a reasonable multiple or something yeah i think that's a possibility and there's also i think this is remote but um there is the possibility of other companies approaching them to be you know to acquire them but I would like to think that that's remote because of the people involved in their state that they have, but um, I I tend to think the tech under is a more likely possibility. But um, yeah, I suppose that, that's those are the two main things like the 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 um cyclicality of the business and then also the um the tech under possibility. But um, I suppose just to a lesser extent as well, um, if there's high attrition in the employee base um obviously obviously like yeah that one's pretty obvious but um if they keep investing in the service entity uh without any results uh it could potentially go loss making so there's a pretty good cash buffer there so that if they ever did um you know for a short period of time that's okay but like if it's sustained weakness then maybe eventually i'd give up on it but um yeah, pretty confident that won't happen, but yeah, it's a possibility. So yeah, I, I guess um, a lot of it really, I mean, the risk of the take under whatever increases as the, the um, if they're not able to, you know, diversify a bit and stay, stay keep the head above the water with the um, general market downturn in M&A and what have you. Uh, that kind yeah, of risk increases over time, doesn't it? But then, if they are able to, if the market turns quickly, then this is not really an issue, and things will probably quite quickly recover and share price wide and stuff. And 
And if um, I mean, it's it's exactly the same reasoning as this, as why you would repurchase shares or why you would dilute shares. Like, yeah, the share price goes down and the profits go down. The company's worth less. Uh, if it's temporary, we can buy it cheaper. But yeah, um, you know what I mean. Like, if, if you're going to buy back shares, you have a long term optimistic view, but a short term pessimistic view. So maybe you want to buy it for long term optimism. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, they might do something. They might be doing it with the because they only have eleven percent of the shares left to buy or something. That they might view it as twenty. Delist it and then relist it when the market's recovered or something. That might be the the most cost effective way. To save a couple of years of fees of paying whatever, and then um, I mean they listed it at um, around one dollar. I think it might even be a little bit more than one dollar, but um. Almost half that now, so well, it's one business, one pound. So. <laughs> give the one give the pound. give the UK so. currency a <laughs> hundred pence. Yeah. <laughs> See, and it did actually go up above that, didn't it? Because it's about seventy percent down or something from its high, so it did actually go up um, after mm. IPO for a bit, didn't it as well? So. Yeah, it went up to 100 and I think the exit is it's pretty funny because it's around about the time that I initially wrote my first round up and put that out, it had an impact on the stock. So <laughs> it went from like a dollar ten or something to like a dollar thirty-five. And then I was just proven wrong completely. So yep. Yeah. Well Yeah, so I mean I think I think we've well covered the downside. I mean and I think a lot of the the upside depends on it. I mean, it seems like they've got, they've got a good business model, and it and in the right environment, it certainly uh, uh, has the opportunity to really grow and become you know give give a really good return to investors. And it's already yielding what seven eight percent, something like that. Um, something in, yeah in on the well on last year's profits. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, it depends. It might might come. It's it's quite variable. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah. Because it's just a flat seventy percent of profit, so yeah, profit goes down, the dividend goes down, and profit goes up, the dividend goes up. Yeah, it is the right. I think that is a, the right way to do it, and I think, um, or you yeah, know, progressive dividend policy, disastrous. Yeah. Um, and if you, if there's a perfect example of this, so um, you know the business. Have you ever heard of the business Realty Corp? A realty income. It's like uh, a, yeah, it's like a I think dividend so, yeah. investment trust in US. So they have a progressive dividend policy where the dividends compound, not the earnings, the dividends compound. Yeah, so yeah. what they've done is they haven't been able to compound the earnings. So they've taken on a bunch of debt and a, uh, issued a oh, bunch yeah. of shares it's just awesome. to be able to sort of pay these dividends. So Yeah, if you're going to yeah. do something like that, you need to have it as like the dividend is like l- less than 50% of your um, like mid-cycle earnings or something. So then it's uh, it's can be pretty well covered throughout this period and then then there's additional cash distributions on top of that so that i think every business should really have a, a variable component and if they are going to yeah. have a fixed dividend that it needs to be set at a low enough level that um it's going to yeah be i think they just need to have a progressive earnings growth policy not a progressive dividend growth policy yeah <laughs> that'd be nice <laughs> yeah all right tristan anyway. I, th- I mean i think that's everything i can think of um here all my question stuff is there anything else you think you want to mention to sort of summarize the 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 company yeah i mean it's a 11 million dollars 11 million dollar 
11 million pound company it's listed on the AIM exchange, the worst exchange in the world. Uh, <laughs> it's 80% owned by the founders um, or by the insiders. Um, you know, there's plenty of risk to, you know, what's not to like. So, yeah. <laughs> That's a great one. So, I think, um, yeah, should we just end by then? Do you, do you want to tell listeners where they can go to find find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at hurdle underscore rate. Uh, so, I have a sub stack as well, just under the same name. Um, you'll find my email on that sub stack in some of my posts. And there's a there's a link I think if I remember at the top of your Twitter to that sub stack and everything else, isn't there? So Yeah, that's right. I don't post links on Twitter anymore because they get throttled. But um Yeah. Yeah, you can find that link on that on my bio. Cool. Well thanks a lot, Tristan, for coming on. it's been it's definitely for me personally, this is actually a company I'm considering as well. So it's it was great to to pick your <laughs> pick your brain on it. Um see how after great. I'll I'll probably do some more digging myself and and maybe get back to you at some point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd be interested. Thanks a lot. In the UK. Yeah, Thanks. yeah, and I I could probably attend the AGM and stuff. I think it was in Manchester, wasn't it? It's about an hour and a half train from me or something. So not too bad. A bit better than me. Yeah. <laughs> a day and a half. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks everybody for listening. See you all next time. 